Welcome to Tactical Permaculture. I've worked on projects ranging from the poorest to richest clients, from inner cities to suburbs to farmlands to remote wilderness, from the eco-war front lines to celebrity backyards. In over 25 years of service to the earth and the community of life, I've learned that in the fight for sustainable survival, growing is half the battle. Go to tacticalpermaculture.com for more info. You gotta train for me Because I'm training for you We gotta love, love And revolution to do You better train for me You'll be training for you March 24th, 2023, episode number 45 this is a report on a very important observation that I've made over the past few months since the uh, the major rain event back in October. I discovered that uh, despite what I had previously thought, despite the, the myth that um, sandy soil just drains water straight through it and, and dries out, and this sort of uh, assumption that... Um, desert sands are they are definitely they definitely are harsh and definitely have have limits to fertility but what has been revealed to me is that there's a surprising amount of moisture retention and fertility in the desert sand which has literally no uh no organic matter that's that's visible to the naked eye and it's it does have gradients of of grit and and dust and it's it's quite uh there's quite a fine mist powder um but there's no there's no clay there's no real silt it's all sand and sand dust and uh what organic matter is 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 available it's in pockets of depressions and landforms on the on above ground i call it mulch from the sky that just blows in with the sandstorms it gets it's basically uh the uh, it's like the the rocks and the the sand landforms are the grinder teeth that when the wind blows all of the twigs and bits of uh dead animals and feathers and all kinds of uh all kinds of all, all the different organic living material it does get does get turned into a um a very very nice mulch material but it doesn't i never really see it um commingled in the in the soil itself in the sand it's uh it's just in these pockets and, and little areas where it collects with the wind on the surface and so I was very shocked and surprised after that that big rain, after having been here for over a year and a half and it have, having had it rain several times, never after any of those rains 
was there anything but just a slight additional greening of what otherwise had been very much struggling um, different forms of 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 uh, woody shrubs that uh, barely seemed to flower and many of them looked like they were dead or dying or on or really breathing their last breaths and and so just those uh those number of rains that happened before that major rain event last october all they did was sort of um give them a a brief bit of uh of relief and nothing else noticeable occurred anywhere else on what otherwise felt like a wasteland. But what I noticed within a few weeks after that October rain was the emergence of more and more distinct species of herbaceous plants, meaning non-woody, non-shrub-like herbs and and vegetable green type plants um that i was not able to identify uh by memory by i was not i did not recognize any of them i recognized their sort of um what they're related to within different different taxonomies of of botany but i'm not the most sophisticated botanist plant expert and I will have to be doing some research to get these identified, but I'm thrilled for so many reasons. And for one, there's a variety of different types. There's there's types that are more prostrate and growing laterally across the surface. There's ones that, uh, that grow vertically, uh, like spears coming up. Uh, there's ones that are more somewhat like succulents, um, but as of now, since, as of now, that one rain event was enough to get probably about a, almost a dozen that I've noticed, and I've been documenting them as I, as I discover them, different, there's been wild grass, clumping variety type of grass, um, yeah, different, and they're all now everything is going to seed and flowering, stuff that's looked like a, like a wild radish or mustard type plant. Um, yeah, I could I could try to try to match them up, but most importantly, they what I what I observed was that, uh, and while I while I will need to identify them precisely uh, over time. And I have the means to do that now. Uh, what what matters the most about it is just the discovery that that these plants were able not just to establish themselves after that rain, but with only tiny, only a very few number of rain events since then, and most of them being almost so insignificant that they, even in the cold. There was no trace of of the uh, of the drops within minutes. They would it would just blow. They would just blow away or evaporate, even without the sun being out and even in in cold very cold temperatures. 
So I wasn't expecting much out of what was coming out of the ground. I was just excited and, and thrilled that, they, that it was even happening at all. It was astonishing and uplifting because I wouldn't have guessed it. I would have figured, well, I've been here a year and nothing came up. And I also figure that the drought's worsening and I can expect even what's here now and thriving, the shrubs that are still green, I can expect them to keep keep dying off and just force myself to adapt accordingly. But it's been... Uh, quite a pendulum towards the um, towards the the rainy side over the last several months off the charts in some in some uh, by some metrics unfortunately most of that of those of those rain events those atmospheric rivers actually missed me completely and I almost got nothing out of it so I guess in some ways I'm spared but I'm designing for the ability to capture as much rainwater as possible and I'm in a location where there's very little um, it would it would take a biblical proportion floods to to really endanger or disrupt what I'm doing here uh, have a negative impact there could be a lot more rain here the the rain event that happened that was that was um most significant back in October it wasn't it wasn't damaging it wasn't disruptive it was it it just did this magical thing which was that it deposited a uh in in my short span of experience an unprecedented amount of moisture under the surface that for months in all the digging that I do for my pond building and everything else would always continue to notice that to my surprise the sand actually performs in a in a almost exact exactly the same as wood chip mulch would in the sense that you expect the top inch or so to dry out after after um, a rain event sort of subsides and, and, and the surface gets the sun again and dries out a bit, but that it would retain, retain moisture for the majority of, uh, of the, the rest of the depth of the organic material going down to where it's going to hit topsoil or, or subsoil or hard pan and run off uh, at a right angle to contour otherwise, in other words, downslope from where um, where where it was hitting a harder surface so obviously that the point with the mulch being if you if you were trying to bootstrap a food forest ecosystem then within reason the more the merrier of mulch to lay down because when when it does rain that water is going to be sponged up in that material and it's going to last a long time and provide um, a buffer from the baking sun throughout the seasons. And, and one rain event can form a sort of suspended lake in, those, in that material that will extend the growing season and buffer the uh, buffer what's what, uh, the, 
buffer all the plantings in the driest months. So it's 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 a um, staple. <laughs> it's a it's a essential ingredient in permaculture design. And there's lots of it's a whole lifestyle to get into. It's it's a whole it's it's a way of life for sure. Mulching, uh, and I would never, I would never consciously acquire sand to 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 do sand mulching with. But what I have discovered here is that because the the function, the efficiency of this sand to retain water over time, at least during the cooler months, is very promising, and it means that. It's going to be possible to not rely on the time it takes to grow mulch, living mulch, and chop and drop mulch, or wood chipped mulch over time. Growing that material on site, I will obviously be doing that, and have been doing that, and have been collecting everything that I grow as it dies, collecting the carbonaceous dried. Uh, dead stalks and leaves and stems and everything, roots, everything, and and storing them in in swales, uh, just to be processed into into large grain mulch material. And uh, I also have imported uh, some of the cleanest mulch that that you can buy from the from the commercial um, supply lines, and have uh, several yards of that stored. Um, in pits in the ground and uh, I use that sparingly for for certain applications but I would have assumed that I would need millions of dump trucks filled with high quality wood chip mulch in order to bootstrap a forest floor here but what I discovered (laughs) is that there's there is enough uh power of the, the properties of mulch at work after uh, after a, a fall significant rain event to for plants that have seeds already embedded in the soil to establish themselves completely on their own without any irrigation and as someone who is um, moderately botanically literate I'm able to make the comparison and say oh i don't i may not know exactly what that plant name is the latin name of that plant but i can relate it to species of plants that are that are edible or medicinal that i would tend to to grow and and eat or or make into a apothecary type of product an herbal medical product and um because of that, I, I as because I see the diversity and the, the the variety of plants that volunteer establish themselves. I mean, these are the wild natives of this region, and uh, I can plug in analogs that are that are edible, medicinal, or otherwise beneficial to me in my design, and know that they will function as well as what's already thriving here under the right circumstances and to know that they have enough nutrients available and they have enough 
consistent moisture retained that's available for them to get established and fully go to seed within their their life cycle within a normal annual so basically it's the opposite it's the opposite growing season whereas in a a more um in a climate with a killing frost and a and a less extreme summer the growing season would be from throughout from spring to summer and then it would it would decline and go to harvest and die off in the in the later fall and and go dormant or be dead over the winter here it's the, it's the opposite in the sense that i can grow a lot during the winter because the freezes are are uh, only on a on a a short number of days out of the out of the year is there even a temperatures near or below freezing and even then that those days that freezing temperatures occur those freezing temperatures only occur for a narrow span of hours before typically the sun comes up or even if it's there's clouds the the um even if there's cloud cover the temperature will rise above freezing and only i've noticed after a let's say a winter rain has i haven't seen snow here yet but after a winter rain then that moisture on the ground and in the atmosphere will suck the temperature out and it will keep it keep it very cold for much longer but point being it's a very forgiving winter growing season and I was able to sustain myself on winter greens and herbs throughout this whole winter nonstop and uh and with far less water use and at some for 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 many stretches because I was so inspired by the um by the by the the thriving of these wild plants coming up after that rain, I actually reason with myself that I may be uh, having come from being spoiled with being on tap back in my previous permaculture projects back before I was forced to um, adapt to fully off off grid off top off tap meaning no no water being piped in only water that I truck in or that I collect from the sky and being on a real-time solar budget and looking at the the constraints that come with that and want not wanting to not wanting to um, be wasteful with financial resources to go and burn fossil fuel to truck in water so that means moderating the use of it, using it very sparingly and wisely and capturing as much rainwater and, and always increasing the, the scaling up of rainwater catchment. But seeing how well those wild plants have thrived over this fall and winter from one major rain event, I, conv I was inspired to shift my habits of just watering probably excessively from having there be no limit to the water supply uh, w within reason being in the city or being even on farms and whatnot that was just part of the package you just you had water coming out of the hose coming out of the tap and almost without interruption or with very minor interruptions so
it, it just it it, uh, it doesn't force you to have the most austere habits. Obviously, here I'm in a situation where it's it's I'm forced to, and it's life and death, and I need those phytochemicals, I need those mineral nutrients, I need that that fresh raw living plant prana that I put into my ferments, and and preserve uh, over over in cycles and just continue to rotate through uh, perpetually. That's what I've been doing. And uh, very nutrient dense, very low input as far as the water. And I've got, you know, cocoa core, uh, really clean compost and, and, and mulch that I imported in bulk and numbers of, of, of uh, cubic yards each. So that I've got a good, a good mix. And then obviously I'm generating fertility through pond water, fertigation and, and other means. And um, and compounding the uh, the enrichment of of the growing mediums that I'm using, so they're they're getting all of this additional nutrient. My plantings in my bonsai food forest are getting all of these additional nutrients, plus tons of extra water, plus more water retentive. Uh, um, substrate to grow in and yet wouldn't you know it it's 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 actually it's actually uh, nature's um, joke on you that uh, the things you plant in your garden tend to do far less well as just natural adapted wild weeds you know and so if only you could determine which weeds are edible and which ones will kill you and not like like one uh one wild harvesting wild crafting plant identification teacher said to her students once you can try anything once and that was a macabre joke of saying you know you may not you can try it but you may not live so you know there's uh there's something called the universal plant edibility test which I will not go into in detail, and I certainly will not be giving any advice, medical advice or wild harvesting uh, dietary advice. But I will say, for me, the takeaway, again, is that stuff knows how to grow here. It knows when to grow here. The, 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 the sand, of all things, is loaded with wildflowers, all kinds of different herbaceous plant species, complete diverse array of totally different types and all of them are flourishing. And I'm, I'm not saying it looks like a, a dense prairie grassland, wildflower lush environment, but the number of, uh, of successful wild plants coming up that are uh, that are not succulents and that are plants you would find in any forest ecology. Um, they may have certain adaptations to deal with the the pH of the of the sand or the the lack of humus. I'm sure that they are tough as nails in terms of how they've adapted, but they don't look like hardened. They're not like cacti, you know. They're not like desert hardened. They're 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 very delicate forest type plants. Delicate flowers, delicate stems, delicate leaves, um, 
stuff that looks like arugula, stuff that looks like dandelions. I mean, stuff that I did not expect to see in a desert, but was thrilled to discover and see them flourish and know that if I can harmonize with that pattern and I can save money on bulk mulch, the weight, the fuel expenditure of the weight and the cost of the material itself, the time it takes to process it and grow it if you're growing it yourself, like what if all of that time and energy can be traded for simply bulk seed purchases and then dancing those seeds into the sand and acknowledging that some percentage of them are going to feed the seed harvester ants and the rodent population and um, create a, a, a feast and hopefully not a, uh, a disruption of, uh, of the balance of wildlife, but it to enhance and encourage more life and more diversity but whatever survives the feasting by the critters will have a chance in the event of a major rain, the next major rain event, to take hold from one rain and to grow and fully mature as annuals, at least as annuals. I mean, uh, yeah, it's unlikely. I, I doubt that. I doubt that anything that's growing now is is a perennial that's going to survive the real summer months when they come back um, and it looks like everything is flowering going to seed and knowing that it's got X amount of days forward from when it comes up to 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 reproduce before it would be killed not by the frost but by the heat of the sun and so again that that reversing of the growing seasons but that's very promising that tells me that there is no limit to what I can get established out here. It will take the patience of waiting for major rain events like that one. And uh, cause I certainly will not be attempting to scatter seeds and irrigate them. I'm going to concentrate my minimal water supply on minimal irrigation within an enclosed bonsai food forest, micro, micro uh, designer ecology and uh, and really look forward to a future where I'm buying bulk seeds that I know are going to function similar to and be hardened and resilient in the way that the, the wild plants out here are. And um, yeah, uh, hopefully discover that some of what's growing out here does have edible and medicinal uses that I wasn't aware of and then be able to to uh, nurture and cultivate and, and foster the growth uh, and the extension of some of them. So maybe if there are, there are ways to, to nudge it uh, towards more productivity and to buffer it more, um, to, to save seeds, to harvest seeds and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that is to me very miraculous, this I never guessed that sand was actually a camouflaged form of mulch. But I have not, uh, I did not. This, yeah, this, this site is really my first real 
deep immersion into desert desert dwelling, desert ecology. I've passed through deserts on tours with bands. I've stopped, I've played shows outside in deserts. So I've, it's not like I've never been in a desert, but to, to go through now uh, over two years at this point of experiencing the full season flows and uh and and observe and notice the differences in what is uh what's coming up and out of the ground it's a real game changer and it makes me and i've said before i living here noticing all of the different diverse forms of wildlife and now adding to that these mind-blowing this mind-blowing diversity of herbaceous plant life coming up I've decided to stop to to call it the arid jungle because it's definitely not one of those. There are places on Earth that actually get almost no rain at all, period, and that are complete. Uh, they're not they're not toxic dead zones, but they are like literally devoid of of any vegetation whatsoever, and nothing can survive there. Not just because of the temperatures, but because they literally get no rain. I've seen documentaries where they cover that those areas and seen footage of it. It's it's, it's definitely nowhere near that level of barrenness. Um, anything can happen with climate change, but I am thrilled and really hope that that whatever happens moving forward with climate change, that uh, we can. This where this is where I'll get into a bit of that PSA mode to wrap it up. Is that uh, there's not a lot we can do. We can there's not a lot of we don't have a lot of creative solutions to drought and irrigation and hydrating human populations in in a situ, in a situation of grout of uh, of drought. The energy. The energy input to to do desalination on a massive scale is not uh, at a at a high efficiency point, and I don't personally look forward to a world where we where we're so out of balance with fresh water on the land that we um, that we have to abuse the oceans in that way. That would be to me even if you could do it in the most efficient energy efficient way in the most the greenest way to me it seems like a real admission of failure a real cheat you know i would rather live beautifully sustainably within a real time rain budget and do the creative stuff which is my point being that uh you know when if you if you're in rainy seasons, when when it floods, even if it only rains once a year, even if you only get one inch of rain a year, that's your design challenge to capture as much of that so slow sink and spread as much water as you get naturally flowing through whatever site you're designing on, and you have the most options and the most potential and the most creative um, possibility when 
when really allocating culturally the time and energy to design and build to manage and to and to apply intelligently the gifts of rain that we get in whatever quantity like when it's just pure drought there's like they said there's not a lot of options at that point but if you can buffer the dry season the dry months the dry spells the drought periods the way that that throughout this throughout the uh the millennia since the dawn of horticultural societies since the dawn of uh ceramics and whatnot they've built underground uh receptacles throughout the world there's been all kinds of epic very organic and sustainable stone and ceramic earthwork type water catchment systems and at their at their best they were able to buffer and even out drought seasons and extend productivity um, in a way that was sustainable and created a, a longevity of a culture and at worst they would be damaged by seismic events, earthquakes and whatnot, or that a culture would get so decadent that it would overpopulate and what could have been a sweet spot that allowed them to last at a smaller population scale, possibly indefinitely, they they abused that and they and they, they built empires and armies and went to war and had and just overgrew their own systems to where they couldn't sustain any shock to them and what would have been see I like the idea of maintaining small uh, a small nimble elegant um, human population uh, density relative to the lushness of the resources natural resources and so if you were at that point on a smaller scale to to uh, up upscale the rainwater catchment systems and upscale the earthworks so that you're creating so much abundance that uh, could feed like you create create epic edenic paradise permaculture food forest systems that could feed far more than you force it to and then through through ethical cultural wisdom avoid the temptation to to militarize and and become imperialistic and be be an empire and then transform from a from a a regenerative very cyclical very aware of its natural limits population culture society avoid the folly of uh of falling into the trap of civilization it's it's not inevitable to surrender that that grace of, eco- of human ecology at, at, at the at appropriate scale. In fact, 
probably most of the murders that have happened for all time have been the death of horticultural and hunter-gatherer peoples fighting tooth and nail to defend their way of life against colonizing post-agricultural or agrarian civilized warlord empires annexing territory colonizing enslaving and urbanizing and so you know to me it's not utopian to very practically very very pragmatically very down-to-earth manner of of rebuilding this ecological social human ecological fabric with with uh, ethical limits to growth of all kinds with a very very loose limits to the growth of the biodiversity and the soil and compounding the richness of the ecology so that you're living with a wide buffer range of biodiversity and plenty of extra to rely on when times are tough, when times are, are dry, when there's shocks to the system, climate changes and whatnot. But the only way to sustain, to sustain that ratio is to avoid the temptation to build empire. So I'll leave you with that, uh, with that meditation. How, how, much, how much tech do you need? How much grandiosity do you need? How much royalty <laughs> and, uh, and social stratification do you really need to be happy, to be secure, to, be, to thrive? And uh, that's going to determine whether you are my ally or my enemy <laughs> on what side on what side of that, uh, of that battle line you, you find yourself. And um, with all, 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 all love and all due respect, yeah, the, the, the people who are engaged in in rewilding and reintegrating with nature are gonna be the ones that the empire builders are gonna have to continue to fight and kill, so. I know what side I'm fighting on and fighting for. I'm on the side of the earth. I'm on the side of wildness. I'm on the side of first peoples. And I am against all of the forces of imperialism and colonization that would pave and poison and pollute and unsustainably develop and militarize and overpopulate and deforest and and barrenly desertify the wild so i will see you in the, digging trenches to plant trees digging i'll see you in the contour swale swale mound trenches and we'll be growing our weapons growing our our 
defensible perimeters and um, enjoying life and being happy and healthy and free while we do it. Cheers.